Well, I'm sure that you uh, recognize those words, those iconic words. I was looking up um, one famous one-liners, and, and that's one that most people will recognize uh, f- from modern history. And as I was looking it up, um, I, I looked up famous one-liners, and everything was things like best iconic one-liners from cinema, um, or best iconic one-liners from a public speech. And I, I didn't look up the word iconic, but you ever hear a word that's just like in fashion? Everyone's, I mean, I'm, I, my wife is gonna, this is gonna quit ranting Kevin right now, cause, um, you know, there was a while there was a word was surreal was the word used all the time. Um, everything's iconic. Anyway, um, they give these I, iconic one-liners, uh, like you've had me at hello. You probably know where that comes from, Jerry Maguire, or things like there's no place like home. Anybody? Wizard of Oz, yeah. Or, or, or one-liners from a public speech. Four score and seven years ago. Abraham Lincoln. I have a dream. Martin Luther, MLK, right. Some one-liners, though, as I was looking at this, I remember due to a person's quick wit. For instance, a reporter asked Pope John the Twenty-Third how many people work at the Vatican, and his response was about half. Uh, or a person's ability to laugh at themselves, you know, to not take themselves so seriously. Uh, it's reported that Abraham Lincoln, after being called two-faced, responded and said, seriously, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this one? <laughs> Some are remembered because they're um, just a brilliant assessment of times, of the times that we're living in. Reverend Edward Everett Hale, uh, during a time of great stress in the U.S., was asked if he prayed for the U.S. Senators. And he said, no, I look at the senators and I pray for the country. Um, you've probably heard those before. This one step, small step for man and a giant leap for mankind is one that as I was looking at it, I thought that's exactly what is happening in this passage of scripture that we're looking at today. We will look at um, the, the, the death of Stephen, which seems insignificant and small. And yet, it's historic. And the the line that sticks out, which is a hinge verse in all of Acts, so we come to Acts, and we we move from this unbreakable to this idea of the unlimited word and and power and spirit of God as he moves out, is there's a line that is one of those famous one-liners. It says Saul was standing there. He He was a witness. He was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And that's just a hinge verse that moves from Jerusalem that moves to the rest of the world. And and the death of Stephen seems insignificant. But Luke sees this as so significant that there is no other speech recorded in the book of Acts that has the length that this has. There are a few places that are, are significant in this story of the early church. And this is one of those. One commentator said, you go to Jerusalem and you'll find no literal monument of Stephen. But reading this story is like standing on hallowed ground before a fallen hero's monument. There's 67 verses, some two to three, in some versions, four pages of this story in this book of Acts. Because here is a sense we're coming before hallowed ground when we read the scripture of one of the great fallen heroes of the church, who launches the church from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. 
And one of the reasons this is so important is because Saul was standing there and Saul really understood what Stephen was saying and proclaiming that day. And that's what I want to kind of help us understand is how significant these words of Stephen are. And so I'm not going to read all the verses, but I'm going to give you a taste, in a sense, of this speech of Stephen's. We read in verse 8 that Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. If you remember, Stephen was one of them who was selected, one of the Greeks selected just prior to this, we talked about this a week before, to serve the Hellenist Jews who were feeling slighted. Already there was a sense of racism in the church, and they attack it right away. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. And they were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. And none of them could stand against the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persecuted some, and they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen. Here's the lie. They said, we've heard him blaspheme Moses and God. This raised and roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law. They're upset. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. And the lying witnesses said this. This is what they said. This man always is speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen. And listen to these words. Because his face became as bright as an angel's. In that moment, he was being filled with the Spirit of God. His whole countenance is changing. And then the high priest asked Stephen... Are these accusations true? And then this is Stephen's reply. And here's what I'm not going to read all this. Because really in these next two, a couple of pages, some 60 verses, Stephen riffs through the history of Israel's rejection of every prophet God sends them. He just goes through a list of every time God shows up and they reject him. Every time when God's there... And he wants them to go somewhere, and he is speaking to them in a certain time, in a certain place, and he wants them to go. They refuse to go. They reject God when God shows up. And this is just one more of those cases. In their pride and their selfishness, they kill God's prophets, unwilling to humble themselves and die to their own selfishness and let go of their power, their position, or whatever, their comfort, whatever it might be. And you get this picture here in Stephen, in his speech. And he goes through Abraham and he goes through um, Jacob and, and Joseph. And he continues with each one. So this is kind of what he's going through. And, and then he comes to Moses. Lands on Moses for a little bit because Moses is really important. They said, you know, they talk about Moses and God. This is what you're upsetting is the law of Moses and God. And so he stands on Moses for a little bit and he talks about three different times they reject him. And then they, he comes to the very end and he gets to where he wants to go. He goes from Moses to Joshua and then he moves to David, which he has been kind of heading the whole time. And he moves to David 
And it says, David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. This is what they're upset about. He's talking about there not being a temple. And, 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 and uh, Stephen even adds, Solomon was the one who actually built it, guys. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. And he quotes some of the prophets, heaven is my throne. And then at a certain point, he looks at them and he says, you stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. Now, you got to admit, this can't be landing well, right? This is not you know, how to win friends and influence people kind of a thing. And he says this, and, and the Jewish leaders, they're infuriated, it says, by Stephen's accusation. And they shook their fists at him in rage. They're just now completely enraged. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven at the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of heaven. And people say, why not seated? Because he went up to be seated. It, there's this idea that he's standing now in a sense of judgment. He's standing with Stephen in the midst of this. There's all kinds of different thoughts around this. But he's standing in the place of honor at the, God's right hand. And he says, look, I see the heavens open, says Stephen. And they put their hands over their ears. And they began shouting. They have their hands over their ears. They cannot stand to hear what they think is complete blasphemy. They run at him. And they rush, drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him. They take off their cloaks before they stone him, and they throw them at the feet of this guy named Saul, who is standing there, very aware of what this Christian movement would mean to the law of Moses and to the Old Testament faith. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't hold this offense against them. Don't charge them for this sin. And with that, he died. And here's that hinge verse, the famous one-liner. And Saul was one of the witnesses. And he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And in the Greek, the word killing is, is not found in other places. It is a harsh word. It would be like saying um, what some have said, the killing of George Floyd. This idea that this person was taken and put to death. Why is this so significant? Why is this so important and I really would hope we can kind of unpack this and as I do I just want to share with you that I'm going to spend some time on this first point because I think that's kind of where that Stephen's kind of in this first point for a little bit but the truth contains in in Stephen's word if you think about it move the location of God's spirit and presence from a building on a piece of land in a particular city No longer would it be housed in a temple in the land of the Jews. God's spirit and present would now be dwelling in people in any place, anywhere, and in any land. It's hugely significant. 
The implications are that the, the word of God with the spirit of God can spread into the people of God around the world. And Paul stood there, Saul, later to be Paul, stood there, and he understood these words that, that he's quoting from Jesus, which is now catching fire in the hearts of these people who have had the Holy Spirit come upon them. He's recognizing that these words will put a nail in the, in the coffin of the Old Testament faith. This is so significant. So what I want to share with you is what I call three imperatives that I think are so important that come out of this passage. And the first is this. When you listen to the Stephen's speech, the first thing that you get out of this is be willing to let God, let go and, 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 and go where God goes. Just be willing to let go and go where God goes. What we, we look in this first part, if you just want to follow along with me, there's the arrest of Stephen, that's verses 8 through 15, so it just sets up the whole speech. And in this, in this uh, first few verses, in verses, uh, actually verse 8, it talks about the effectiveness of his ministry, right? He is a person who is full of God's spirit and grace and power, and he's going around doing miracles and, and signs and there's wonders, and, and he's sharing the, the, the message of God. And in verses 9 through 11, you see the frustration of these Jews who are called called the freedmen of a certain particular synagogue, probably a synagogue of people who were once slaves. Many of them may have been um, Hellenist Jewish slaves. So Stephen is one of them in a sense. They were people who came from different cities, could have come around the time of Pentecost here at that point. And there was a synagogue for those who had been set free, also could be actually Gentiles who converted to Judaism, and they are there, and they're upset, and they're trying to somehow stand against him. And it says opposition arose from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. And what is interesting is as they are there and they're um, standing before Peter, they can't in any way oppose him. The spirit of God in him is way too strong for them. They can't stand against his wisdom. So then you go to verses 12 through 15. So here you see this, um, this activity of Stephen and how God's using him. Then you see the frustration of these, these people from a certain synagogue who are very much afraid of what's going on and what's happening with the other Hellenist Jews that were beginning to follow. And then you find in verses 12 through 15 the charge brought against Stephen. And, and the charge is that he's insulting God. Literally, here's the words. Words of blasphemy against Moses, and kind of wait for it, and God. That's an interesting order. It's a purposeful order. They place the law before God as the most important. This is the same charge, if you want to think about it, that came against Jesus. If you go to the Gospel of Mark and you look at chapter 14, verses um, 55 through 65, it tells the story of Jesus as he stood in trial. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, they're looking for evidence, right, in order to charge Jesus to put him on a cross. They want to get him to the Romans who have the only authority to put him on a cross, to kill him. They didn't have that authority. And they can't find anything until someone comes along and says, here's the charge. This will stick. I will destroy. This is what they said Jesus said. I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days we'll build another not made by man. 
And that's like, that sets off, oh, this is, this is too much. And if you read this, it's the same charge that is brought against Stephen. What's interesting is you go through the book of Luke, you'll find this later with the life of Paul as well. But when you look at the book of Luke, Luke will often say when the Spirit of God is someone, it's in someone, it's like Jesus himself is showing up. So you get this picture of like Jesus showing up in Stephen. And you know how you can know this? Is you read this, and you maybe heard it as I read it, if you've been in church or heard the story of Christ's death, there's a lot of parallels. In fact, there's a guy named Ben Witherington who writes in a commentary, the, he says there's all kinds of parallels. And I'm just going to read a few. He said, they appear in this passage. Both of them have a trial-like setting. They suffer testimony of false witnesses. They mention the temple's destruction. They speak of the temple made with hands. They're charged with blasphemy. They're asked by the high priest to speak. They commit their spirits to God. And the last thing that you hear on his lips is, Father, forgive them for their sins. There's this incredible parallel that somehow in Stephen, the spirit of God is showing up. His face is showing up like an angel before these people. And it's not Stephen you're standing against. It's Jesus. It's God in flesh in a sense. It's incredible parallel. And here's the significance. You might be going, oh, so I get, okay, I get this idea that, you know, the temple is no longer going to be there, you know, and, and yeah, it must have some impact on Moses and the law. Here, catch this. If, if the, here's the reason they place the law before God in this, in this charge. Because if the, if the temple is in some way destroyed, so also is everything from the law of Moses on. How? The daily sacrifices, the priestly duties, the feasts, the showbread, the candle, all the different things, the, the very um, inner temple, all the stuff where God resides is it gone. Destroy the temple, and they knew, Saul knew as he stood there, destroy the temple, and you'd actually dismantle the Old Testament faith from Moses on. Think about it. It actually happened in A.D. 70. After um, Jesus and, and, and the spread of the church began, I think providentially God, through the Romans, destroyed the temple. And from that point on, Old Testament faith as we know it becomes what's called Judaism, and it has to take a different track. But that didn't happen just there. That happened already in what was happening through the speech of Stephen as Jesus was speaking through him. And so with the coming of the Christ due to his sacrifice and the giving of the Holy Spirit, there's no need for a temple building to perform sacrifices, to house the presence of God. The importance of holy Jerusalem, think about it, becomes just another city with a rich history. Mount Zion becomes just another mountain with a, a rich history of God's work in that place. But the structure and all that was done in the structure is gone and changes. God is moving on. Jesus was basically saying, will you as followers of, of your God, the Most High, who brought Abraham and, and, and then he brought all these, this is Stephen and Moses and all the rest, will you be willing to follow where God leads now? And where he's leading now, he's changing things dramatically. It's such a huge shift that a guy like Saul standing back there and goes, this is going to destroy everything I've ever put my faith in. And he's asking this question. I think God asks this and Stephen asks it through them. Because now, instead of a building in a city in a particular place, 
where you go to the presence of God, you are now a carrier of the presence of God. You are his temple, says Paul later when he gets it. This is a huge shift. I I tell you, um, it requires incredible clarity to um, have this understanding that when God is moving in a new way and he's doing something new. Because one of the difficulties that we have, which you see in this passage, is we have a very difficult time giving up things where there's been structure and significance, where God has spoken to us. And it's really tough for us to be able to say what is the substance and what is the structure, what is the truth and what was the vessel that carried that culturally. It's this idea of what is the, the message and how can we distill what is just a method that maybe was used by God. And that kind of change is really difficult. I, I think of this and I go, if I was there living in that day, would I be able to go where God was calling us as people to go? I have a hard time throwing away old shoes that I wear. Now, it's, I have a closet full of a bunch of old shoes. You might go, he's a hoarder. You even my, my clothes, my closet. And, uh, and someone gave me a really good tip. You know, just put them in another closet, all the stuff you don't wear. And if you haven't worn them for a year, you don't need them. That's a good idea. The reason I say, say that is um, you might think I like change and I'm all about change. Yeah, and when I'm initiating change, I love it. When my wife tells me she'd like to move the couch or the chair somewhere else in the room, it's like, are you kidding? What's wrong with it the way it is? I think that's true for all of us. When the Holy Spirit begins to initiate change, it forces us to have to go, okay, what is the structure and what is the substance? What is the method and what is the message? God, where is the carrier that often comes in a cultural kind of way, whether it be music or whether it be the way... uh, I'll go through some of these in just a moment, so let's not get into those yet. Because I really want to cause some pain for a moment, okay? Just imagine if we no longer need to meet in a church building. Oh, man. What if the future meeting in a building, let me say it this way, what if in the future meeting in a building, which we have errantly called the church and people believe is the church, was no longer necessary? What if God were calling us to let go of that and go where he's leading? Okay, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, okay? But I am asking us to think it through. Because it's happened before. Cataclysmic changes have happened to move God's people forward and the work he wants to do and the way he wants to reach people. Think about the Reformation back in the 1500s. There was, at that time, something had occurred. There was a printing press that was made. And the printing press made the ability for people to become literate and then in that process to be able to read a possibility. Now what was happening concurrently at the same time was politically things were changing. Instead of there being the you know Holy Roman Emperor and, and then the Pope and how they would work together and control everything, even though there were schisms and things throughout that time, what was happening was something really bizarre. City-states, princes of certain territories were beginning to form, which would eventually become nations. There was this change geopolitically going on. And so what happens is now a guy like Luther, who then 
is in this place where he gets this revelation that, hey, guess what? It's not how you purchase and work your way to God, but it's really just faith in this God who has given you Jesus by grace. And and now what's happening is it's not Luther, because he can't go everywhere, but the printing press is there. So Luther begins to start translating the Bible from Latin to German. People are starting who are wealthy in certain areas. Princes who have the ability are getting pages and and other wealthy people in those places are getting pages and they're beginning to start to read the word of God for themselves. And they're protected because of these these city-states that are developing. Which allows for a really incredible thing to happen is now the word of God is no longer located in maybe one Catholic church or in a Lutheran church or things such as that. But it's actually the word of God begins to start to to make its way into the homes of people. At one time, if you wanted to hear the word of God, you wanted to hear the Bible read, you would have to go to a church building. And at that time, only priests and religious clergy were allowed to read it. And only language it was read in was Latin. But all of a sudden, this guy Martin Luther comes and translates everything. And to the shock and horror of the church, people are beginning to read in their homes. In fact, this free movement which started in Northern Europe and then went up through Denmark and Sweden and Norway. And the Swedens, Swedes and Norwegians took it one step further. I don't know about Swedes and Norwegians. I'm not one of them. I'm a good German. But they started doing things, not just reading Bible in their homes, which was called conventicles. They did one other thing. They started taking communion together in their homes. That so enraged the state church at that time, whether they're Lutheran or Catholic, that they went after them and persecuted and put them in prison. People died for that. Is huge changes taking place. Okay, I'm going to make you a little more nervous. I asked you that question. What if God didn't use buildings? Not that he won't and doesn't. What if God is up to something today that is, is, that is revolutionizing the church and creating and actually allowing for another great reformation? We talk about the Reformation of the 1500s. There's a lady named Phyllis Tickle. She writes a book. I can't remember the title. But her basic thesis, she was the former editor, I think, of Time Religious um, um, Area of that magazine. She wrote a book that every 500 years, if you go through history, you can write 500 A.D. to about 1,000 A.D. to about 1,500 A.D. And she said, this was a number of years ago, I wonder what's going to happen around 2,000 A.D. She said every 500 years, the church takes its, its, its kind of furniture and removes it, puts it into the attic, and gets new furniture. That's kind of how she says it. I thought that's interesting. That got me thinking. A number of years ago, I started thinking about this. I was wondering and imagining in my heart what could happen. And then all of a sudden, instead of a printing press, we have what's something called the Internet, right? And the Internet is kind of like an interesting kind of printing press. Now it's not just something you get in a book that you got to buy. It's just like anybody who can can get it right in their own home. And then, and then another thing's happening concurrently with it, whether you like it or not, but there's a thing called globalization that's taking place. Well, yeah, there was a printing press and there was a city-state, and, and that created a whole new way. And here's what I want you to hear. There's three important essences in Jesus. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. That's what's most important. That's, that's the heart of it. That's the substance. Everything else around it is structure. 
And, and, and so what if God is going to take the internet, combine it with what's happening globally, and begin to form a new way that the people of God meets and reaches the world for Christ? I was talking to a guy who shared with me um, his... His, his Christmas party this last year. He's a young guy, um, an executive at one of these you know, kind of growing companies. He says, for, for our virtual holiday party, we had about 30 of our senior leaders get together. The organizers shipped boxes out ahead of time filled with all kinds of alcohol, and they had a mixiologist, and I'm sure our good friend was very, very much a teetotaler. Anyway, um, he says, we also leveraged an online tool that allows everyone to have a virtual office and cube in a virtual office building. You get an avatar that you then get to control like a video game. So you can actually walk through the building that they have to the offices where that person is. And just like knocking on the office door, you can begin to talk to them. In fact... They're trying and they're looking at it because this is something that could be happening in offices soon. So that if you are at home, it's okay when you're at home, you can kind of pull away, go to your bedroom or do something else. Well, you're going to now have to be in your office. And so if the boss walks up to knocks on the door and looks in and you're not there, folk, life is changing. I have a small group that meets on Tuesday mornings with a bunch of guys, young guys. And one of the guys is from Edina, and he's having some trouble connecting with some guys in, in Denver. And so he comes on every Tuesday morning with us. And I, that's not alone. I, I know of people who are in prayer groups right now with, using Zoom with people around the world. I'm not saying it was going to all be Internet. There will be some kind of combination of Internet and in person, but something is afoot. And I want to be a part of that. And I want us to be a part of what God is doing. I don't know what it'll look like. What if God is up to something so revolutionary in the church today that another great reformation could be occurring? What if God is preparing us through this reset to let go? And I'm not talking about these first three things. We've even said they're not the most important. I'm talking about what if God is saying to this church in the next 10 years or so, be ready for something far more explosive. And you could be a part of this. What if the church looks different? We exist today in a church because God's spirit moved in other people's lives and they were willing to let go and go where God was going. This church specifically is here because five women did something novel and they said, let's just come together and pray. And see what God wants to do to reach this area. And you've been touched by God through those five women because of what they let go of so they could go where God was going. There's three churches that meet together. That started to meet right after George Floyd was killed. And we meet every Monday from noon to one. Two of them in North Minneapolis, Zion and Faith and us. And I often feel like, why are we there? I really wanted to do something very quickly with regard to this movement and, and wanting to say, what can we do in the city? And I just have this activator, achiever, futuristic 
strength stuff in me, and I just wanted to move. And the pastor, praise God, Brian Heron, the black pastor of Zion Church, didn't want anything really to do with me. I felt like he gave me the cold shoulder for about a month or more. And we've had people in our church who have been the ones that got this thing going and initiated and were there meeting with them. But eventually I got the idea of what Pastor Brian and many of the others in that black congregation wanted us to understand. And that is they didn't want us to come in and just come in for a little bit and then leave. They wanted relationship and they said, you know what? Let's do nothing. Let's just every Monday for one hour pray and build unity, which I've been talking about quite often. Isn't uniformity, isn't unanimity. It is basically saying we'll be relationally, which is the great commandment, and we will be missionally, which is the great commission, connected to one another and God, even if we choose to agree to disagree on some things. And I mean that from my heart. I really believe God is in this And in our movement here of what God is doing, I believe your hearts are mature. I believe you want to hear the Spirit of God. And that's all we as elders and as a pastor, I ask. Be people rooted in the Word of God, filled by and led by the Spirit of God, because we are the people of God. So, oh, I've got too much here. Um, I will keep going, because I think this is so important. So we've been praying. And so in December, we started praying and, and we felt God direct us to three different areas. But one of them specifically is that we just were called to prayer walk down in Minneapolis in the areas where God wanted us to be, where there was crime. So Pastor Heron, who used to be on the consul of Minneapolis, met with the police chief, Arando, I can't, I can't say his name anymore. Um, and he met with him and he said, where should we meet? And he said, here's a good location. They agreed a kind of location, Lindale and Broadway. So we go down there yesterday to do a prayer walk, a whole group of people. Um, and I remember being there and going, okay, God, what do you want here? And, and we split into two groups and we start praying down the streets. We go, before we even start, we go to one corner and there's this black guy who is with this movement because he had given me his, um, sign to carry and I carried it proudly. I just went like, it's, I was walking like this. Horns are honking as they're going. And we get to the corner and I'm standing there and he says, I just want you to know one of the reasons for this sign, guns down, love up in this movement. Is because right here where we're standing, it's not really on this side over here, it's not so dark, but it's really dark over there. In fact, you know what? That gas station right there, there have been 11 murders there in the last, I thought he said year or so, and I'm just going, I'm not getting gas there afterwards. And we walked down that, we got to a certain place, and, and, and one of the consul women, who is of the fifth ward where we were at, where the mayor wanted us to pray, gets up and says, guess what? In the last, I think it was like nine months, we've had 2,242 reported incidents of violence. And she held up her sign that says, not in my neighborhood. And another guy was asked to speak, and, and he speaks and he tells, he's a 20-year-old, tells about how he got shot in his, kind of right here in the groin, which shattered his femur. And as he was shot laying on the ground, when he was shot and felt the bolt into his flesh, he cried out and said, God help me. And when the guy stood over to shoot him again and the gun clicked and it didn't go off, he said, God, save me. I give you my life. And I'm sitting here going, 
God, this is the stuff you want to do. You want to say, I mean, she, they're talking about their kids and, and, and women and the abuse and the different things because of what's happened. And we're praying people, we're praying people that God would move in us and in this city in such a way that we would see things change, but we have to be a part of it. We have to go where God's calling us to go. I don't know where it is for you. I don't know where it ultimately is for us at church, but I know it's this. It's to fill the great commandment and the great commission. And I, I, I sat there as I, and, and they asked me to pray. And I had this experience of, I think, the Spirit of God. I'm just going, God, help me. I don't, and I just felt Him fill me. I don't think my face was like an angel. I don't know if that's ever happened. But I know God was speaking, because I had an older lady afterwards, after we had just broken up and had prayed together to leave out of this parking lot in Cub. I had an elderly black lady come up to me and said, you know, Pastor, the way you pray, I want to go to your church because I want to hear you preach. <laughs> I just laughed. I thought, oh, it's just so funny. Are we willing to go? Are you willing to go where God goes? And I will share with you two more points that I think are essential. But I'm not going to spend as much time, like I said. Acts 7, 1 through 53 is this, as I said before, this riff, this historical riff through all the, the rejection of the prophets and of God coming. And the second point that I believe Stephen is making is be very careful what you reject because you may be rejecting God. And I mean that specifically in moves of God. Every move of God takes place and it's a move of God and eventually becomes institutionalized. And when the next move of God comes along, guess who are the greatest resistors to the next move? Those who had the first move and then were institutionalized by it. You can go through recorded history. And they will look at things such as they did when God moved in England and a guy named Whitfield began to start having a heart. Wesley, Whitfield, all were meeting together. God began to work in their hearts. Whitfield, this incredible preacher, decides as he's been preaching and crowds are coming to him, but he looks and none of the poor people, none of the people who, with, who are living there without the gospel are coming into these churches, these nice Anglican churches. So he makes a decision. He's going to go out and start preaching at the coal mines of all places. These are the worst of the worst. And he starts preaching and he's, and God begins this great revival, the great awakening as you maybe heard that. And he gets rejected by the Anglican church because you're not supposed to bring the word of God from out behind a pulpit and preach. Be really careful of what you look at. I mean, there's a great example. All you have to do is look at the life of Jesus. And I, and you can read this for yourself, Matthew 12, 22 through 37. Because at one point he says, he who's against me, who is with me, is not with me, is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And I tell you this, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. You go, what is that? It's what Jesus said in his ministry. They looked at the things that Jesus were doing that were holy and of God, and they called them. Unholy. These were the religious right. And Stevens kind of says this. Says, this is what gets him really ticked off. And here's the last thing and I'll close. Be ready to die. 
If you're willing to go where God goes, and you're willing to say, I'm not going to reject the things that God is doing, I really want to have discernment and understanding and to move into those things, then I'm just going to tell you, be ready to die. Those who follow Jesus die daily and carry a cross. People say, how do you, you know, I don't know if I could die for Jesus. Well, the result is this. You probably won't die the big one unless you're dying the little ones daily. We are not people who like to be moved out of our familiarity and comfort into places that are risky, right? Do you know what the... um, Do you know what the most popular chair in America is? Anybody know? The lazy boy. It's not the risky boy. It didn't didn't sell. Hey, we got the risky boy for you. That's what I want. Seriously, folks. Dying daily. What does that mean? It's here's a guy like Stephen. He goes from serving tables. Is that a big deal? Here's this guy who probably is a really well, he's got to be a guy of great personal character and everything else because the way God uses him. Would you serve tables, Stephen? Because we want to go pray and do the big work of, of preaching God's word. Okay, I'll die to that. And he goes from serving tables to serving wherever God leads him. He goes from being falsely accused and unfairly treated, which you will feel and experience when you step out in the risk of following Jesus. He goes from being martyred and put to death to forgiving those who wounded him. And guess what? Here, here's what I kind of want to just think about as I close. The word martyr means witness. That's really what the word martyr means. It means you die as a witness pointing to something else. So here's Stephen dying as a martyr, witnessing, pointing to Jesus, saying, don't charge, and you didn't even have to put the guy's name in it, but don't charge Saul for this sin, please, God. And Saul is sitting here, heartily in agreement, thinking this guy's got to go, and everyone liked him. And something's happening in Saul's heart. When people start to respond to God, one of the things you can watch for is they can get really angry, very threatened. When God's spirit's moving, you, so what happens? He's as angry as you can. He's going to just put this thing out. I'm sure he's shaking with fear and anger. And Stephen's witness, dying to himself, literally plants a seed in the heart of Saul, which I don't even know if Stephen knew until he was in heaven, that eventually becomes one of the greatest witness martyrs that bring the gospel everywhere. What is God calling you to die to? What is it that God's saying, you know what? I have to tell you, for me, yesterday, I had a, you know, I had put in, I had put in more than a full week of work of, week of work, there we go, by like 10 o'clock Thursday, that I still had stuff Thursday and Friday, and then Saturday comes and I go, oh yeah, I'm supposed to go down and do this prayer walk. And I had to die to just going, I'd rather just be at home. I don't know what you gotta die to. But if you want to go where God's going, and if you want to be careful in this process not to reject where God's spirit's moving, I then encourage you to say, God, where are you calling me to listen to your prompting and to move forward?
I'm going to ask the team, and we're going to close with this song. And uh, we're just, I'm just going to pray as they come up. And, and as we play that song, you can worship. And if you're listening uh, through live stream and chose not to go out in this weather, you were smart to some degree, but you missed something really cool here. Um, and then I'll just let you close and Lily, you can pray. But let me just say, Father in heaven, I pray that these words would be more than words. I pray they would be, they would be landing on us. And I pray even more with the force of your spirit. Wherever you are leading individually, any of us, we, I say for us right now, God, we will go where you go. We will not reject what you're doing. And we will die because you have died for us so that others can know you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.